Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Happy Valentine's Day. Great to see you all tonight. Apologies if I sound a bit nasally. I'm turning the quarter, getting over cold. So, And I appreciate Gary Bond for filling in last week. And didn't he do, do a great job with uh, last week's class? I thought it was excellent. And I uh, appreciate Shannon making sure our handouts are ready every week as well. Handouts for tonight, by the way, are at the end of the rows, if you still need one. There's a few extra. All right, I'll open our study in prayer. Holy Lord, we're so thankful for this time together to study Isaiah, to draw closer to you for your truths. Give us strength to follow the truth as we study about your sovereignty tonight over any other so-called gods. Father, it makes us appreciate your power and your might and your love for us, uh, even down to the details that you know. Please bless uh, our study and be with those who are not able to be with us in person, but maybe online, recovering from illnesses or dealing with health issues, that you'll bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're on the back half of Isaiah, or back section, and we actually just have four, five more classes uh, in this quarter. So we have three more to finish off the book of Isaiah, and then I'm going to have two classes on New Testament usage of Isaiah. And um, I was going to do a third one, but with spring break and the snow delay, it didn't work out. So um, we'll kind of talk about those topics once we get to that point. I'll start off just by asking, these are the questions I'd written. I haven't been doing this, so shame on me. But I write these questions in the last handout, so I'll just kind of ask them to to get our our thoughts flowing. So for this class tonight, this is from last week's handout. Um, Why does this section cause debate on the single authorship of Isaiah? Did anyone think about that? That's okay. We're about to talk about it. This one may be a little easier. Who is referred to in this section as God's servant? There's a couple right answers. Messiah, okay. Jesus Christ, can we say that? (laughs) Is there another servant? It's basically the whole of Israel is called the servant. We'll talk about that. A little bit tonight, more so next week, when we cover that section um, and explore what that means. (laughs) The last question is, who is referred to as God's anointed, which would be the Hebrew word Messiah? Any idea on that one? It's not who you think. Cyrus, the Mede, is called the servant uh, or the Messiah. He's called for a purpose. And... uh, yeah, so we'll talk about that. I think he's a, a shadow or a type 
of a Messiah um, in that he would free them from captivity physically and through Jesus Christ we would be freed spiritually. So we'll talk more about that. When we get to this second section here, 40 through 66, it's a very different atmosphere than the first 39 chapters. Judah, at the beginning of Isaiah, is in crisis because of this Assyrian threat and then also the Syro-Ephraimite union we talked about with Ahaz. And so the mood is largely that of judgment, of looming judgment coming. Now here, in starting in chapter 40, we're dealing with the Babylonian period, which the Babylonian Empire came after, Assyria. But it's not during the invasion and even the exile of the Babylonian period. But it's rather coming out of exile. Um, so it doesn't really deal with the threat of Babylonia taking Judah into captivity. That would be the subject of prophets like Jeremiah and even Daniel, who was taken off into Babylon um, and then, of course, in Jeremiah, God predicted through Jeremiah they would be in captivity for 70 years. Um, and so this, does anything strike you about the setting of chapters 40 and going forward being after the exile? Why would that be strange? It's Isaiah several hundred years earlier than this happened. Um, I think I have an error in your handout, actually, in the back side. I put 200 years in the second column from the time Cyrus released the exiles from when this was likely written. It's probably more like 160 Paul Owen numbers, you know, 200. Um, but it's probably more like 160, and then Cyrus was probably born about 100 years later, but still. So it deals with the time 100 years after Isaiah would have written this. Possibly around 700 BC was when this section would have been written, around that time of Hezekiah that we talked about last week. So Cyrus wouldn't be born for another 100 years, and yet he's called by name in chapter 44, and then in 45, and described in detail. Let me flip forward here because I wanted to show this. So the, the message of Isaiah in this section deals with where that arrow is in the five, we've got all the dates down there, kind of hard to read, but 539 is when Babylon fell to Cyrus, who we're pretty sure is the one Daniel calls Darius um, in, in Daniel chapter five. But Cyrus uh, would also release the captives back to their land uh, in 536. And so, yeah, we're jumping ahead in subject matter 150 years. And because there's this abrupt change in circumstance, scholars who are looking for ways to pick at the Bible, uh, they question the unity of authorship. So chapter 40 just jumps as if into... This as if we already know that the exile has run its course and that the reader knows they're going to be released from exile. Well, you remember at the end of 39 last week, there was this kind of looming warning to Hezekiah. Why did you bring these people in and show them all your treasures? You're going to be taken away. And he says, well, as long as it's not under me, you know, my son can deal with that. Um, and then it just jumps ahead. And so there's this jump in subject matter. Um, the immediate context would seem to imply 
that it deals with somebody in their own day. However, we have additional information than just Isaiah, uh, both internal and external to the Bible, to indicate a single authorship of the book. So I'm just going to spend a minute talking about that. Um, Second Temple Jewish tradition between the Testaments, and then even up in the early church um, tradition up until about the 18th century held to single authorship of Isaiah. Um, it was only in, in that time frame that it began to be questioned. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were discovered um, in the 1900s, or was it 1942, 1947, it was one of those. Uh, Isaiah was found on a single scroll, and it was one of the largest scrolls. So that's another external proof of this authorship. It wasn't like uh, scrolls brought together by different authors. And then even more important, inspired internal evidence, is that the New Testament writers quote from both of these sections and attribute both to Isaiah. And even in, in John chapter 12, uh, it's seamless in the latter part of John 12. I think it's around 37. If you read that, he quotes from both sections and says, Isaiah said this, Isaiah said this. Um, no, no clarification of the writer. And then kind of the last point, which we'll get into, is that God's rationale for um, prophesying about Cyrus is to show his sovereignty over the idols. So he, he, this is his, one of his test cases we'll talk about tonight to show here's how I'm sovereign over any other, any other so-called God is I'm, I'm calling this man by name and telling you what he's going to do. If it was just somebody coming along describing what's happening, then it would, um, you know, it, it would reduce that argument to, to not, not being what um, God is proving about himself. And so, indeed, Isaiah's he is uh, describing events that are going to happen 150 years in the future. And these three sections are divided uh, here with, at the end of chapter 48, there's this phrase, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And then you see this phrase again, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked, at the end of chapter 57. So there's these natural kind of nine-chapter breaks, uh, three nine-chapter breaks in this last part. So that's how you get uh, these three sections at the last part of Isaiah and next week we'll talk about the servant of the Lord and Isaiah 53, we know well, but we'll kind of develop this idea of the servant. Why is Israel called the servant? Sometimes the remnant, the righteous remnant is called a servant, and then this one Messiah is called a servant. So there's a correlation there uh, between them, and it's not easy to understand. <laughs> it, it, it isn't for me, um, but we'll talk through that and what that means I think we'll, we'll uh, be able to get a, a pretty good handle on it. And then we'll talk about the last part um, in, in two weeks from now. So let's read chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So again, comfort is for the exiles coming out of Babylon. This is prophesying for a time when they would do this. Um, we know that he's still dealing with the current day, the present day Judah, because here in a little bit, he's going to talk about their hard-heartedness, their idolatry, 
and uh, the same characteristics they've shown in the book, but yet he's talking about a future time when they would receive comfort, when they would come out of, of this exile. They wouldn't have, the, the judgment would be past them, um, and they would have a future hope. So he mentions this idea of receiving double for all her sins uh, in verse 2, possibly both through Israel's captivity and Judah's captivity uh, as well. Let's read 3 through 8. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up let every, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For, my, excuse me, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All, fle- all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm not going to talk about it much, but you probably recognize that last verse 8 there from First uh, Peter chapter 1 quotes that. And you probably recognize another quotation from the beginning, a voice calling, clear highway, um, make smooth the desert and the highway for our God. This is uh, quoted in every gospel account to be who? John the Baptist. So he's uh, described here as one who's going to make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, we know John didn't go out necessarily and shovel rock and, and, and make a physical highway in Jerusalem. He was there to help the people of prepare the way of the Lord, to help their hearts be cleared of the stumbling stones and the, the blocks that were in their way and help them to repent. He, you know, his main mission, we, uh, Glenn preached about it a few weeks ago, baptism of repentance to turn um, from their evil ways, and to be ready for the Messiah. So God here isn't dealing with uh, actual digging of, of dirt there in, in Palestine. He's dealing with the hearts of the people. Um, and so how they would deal with, with things in their life, their inter- internal attitudes. And John, as we know, he wouldn't back down from this mission, um, even when he was cast into prison and uh, would lose his head. He didn't let that intimidate him. And one last point on the highway idea. I read that it was common for a king, when he was announced to enter a city, for people to actually go out and clear the path from big stones. You know, we take for granted having nice aired rubber tires on paved roads. And then you've driven off-road. Pretty quickly, you start getting bumped around and thrown around just with the smallest, um, you know, little rivets and potholes. And so it would have been important if a king was visiting to, to make that way clear. And so that's what this is uh, prophesying about and that we see fulfilled in John is to make clear the highway. But of course, we know it's turning the hearts of the people back to the Lord, uh, not the physical terrain of, of the area. Let's read verse 12. There's a, this is a beautiful passage. We're not going to have time to read this, but this gets into God showing uh, how powerful he is 
over the earth. And we're just going to read verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? And it continues on. Um, but it's, it's beautiful language showing God's ultimate power. And that's contrasted with idols that we're about to read about and man's crafting their own gods um, who don't have this kind of power. So let's, uh, if you look at verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with, uh, will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. So we'll stop there. Um, in fact, let's jump to verse... Sorry, let's keep, keep reading uh, verse 20 as well. He who is impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Um, there's another in the next chapter, kind of an ironically funny almost section that talks about a similar idea of men going out and finding the best trees and uh, cutting them down, using some for firewood, some to build an idol, and prettying up an idol. Um, but, uh, you know, God is showing there's no power in this this uh, image that you've made. I'm so much more sovereign than this. Judah, you know, don't turn to the idols of Assyria, of Babylon, but turn back to me. And so it, why did this, this idea of idols, why did Israel follow idols? Do you remember when that began? Or the time frame? of the kingdom, Jeroboam, in the north. Did somebody else have an answer? Sorry. So even back as far as Egypt, um, there was that the idolatry that was already starting, and then um, with Baal, you know, and any think of Elijah, etc., was was even present there. So it was always um, drawing away Israel's attention, and it came from the surrounding nations. Is kind of the main point that the nations around them. Um, this will get into next week when we talk about Israel as the servant of the Lord. They were set aside for a specific mission, we'll read about in Exodus, and they were to be a light to the nations around them. Um, they were to be a kingdom of priests, it's described, so that the people would recognize God through them. But as we read, they would fail that mission. Um, they would be an um, incapable servant, as contrasted with, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Ideal, incapable and ideal servant. Or we'll get into uh, we'll get into that next week, but um, we may think of polytheism 
when we think of idolatry, like the Greek, the Greek pantheon that we see in like Acts 17 uh, in Athens. But when I, when I read about this, um, they suggested a lot of these nations during this time in Israel's day were henotheists. That is, they would have a chief god, um, the most high, and then they would have many subordinate gods that would carry out the bidding of the chief. And so Assyria had Asher, that was their chief god. Babylon uh, had um, Marduk. Philistia had Dagon. So Yahweh had, or excuse me, Israel had Yahweh, but they weren't satisfied with that. So they had to add in these other idols to kind of fill in other areas that they felt God wasn't, um, maybe wasn't covering. They, they were trying to uh, add to that. It, it almost reminds me of, you know, in Galatians, when Paul says, you know, not to add to the gospel of Christ, um, adding in a uh, placing, you know, emphasis on something like circumcision to to add to the pure gospel of Christ. It's not an exact example, but Israel was not satisfied with God as the one true God. And so, um, sorry, I was trying to find a note here. God couldn't stand this. Um, it violated the first two commandments they were given. Uh, it drew their trust and their life and their society away from this covenant relationship that he had with them. And so we see this idea repeated uh, as we go that he'll say, before me, there is no God formed. There will be none after me. I, only I am the Lord. Uh, so he's trying to get into their hearts to say, don't rely on any other gods and uh, try to add that to what I'm providing for you. I'm the only one. Uh, I, have, I have complete sovereignty over creation and over everything. So any, any comments on the idolatry idea before we move on? Um, I would love to talk about it more, but you, know, you get into it, you don't see idolatry in the same way in the New Testament, do you? Um, but we have a verse such as Ephesians 5.5 5 that warns against covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, and I started to study that and it would take us the rest of the class to talk about that. But, um, that idolatry idea, it, it was similar in Greek, the word to the word latreo, which some of you probably recognize the word latreo. It's one of the words used for service. And so it would be, um, service to an idol, uh, or service to the thing that you're coveting is called idolatry in the New Testament. Um, and that kind of makes your mind think about a lot of things, service to something that you covet, giving, giving your attention and your service to something you covet is compared to as idolatry uh, and something we're warned against. Let's finish off this chapter real quick uh, with verses 29 through 31. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Sounds like the inspiration of the song, Teach Me, Lord, to Wait. <laughs> um, it also reminds me of, you know, he's, the point is being made here, your use, it's expected that your use are going to be full of energy. And as you get older, 
Um, I feel like I had a lot more energy when we had our first child than I have now at 40 when we have our fourth child. And Mark, our five-year-old, he has all kinds of energy. But it, this says, even youths become weary or tired. So yeah, they have a lot of energy, but eventually that runs out, even for those with full of energy. Um, but those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength or will renew their strength. I don't know if you noticed the, the NASB that I read. It says, gain new strength. And some versions say, renew their strength. Um, when I looked into that, apparently the word there in Hebrew, has to do with not so much the idea of filling up an old, worn-out strength or a low strength, but the idea of um, replacing our worn-out strength with God's strength. And I thought that, that was pretty comforting to me, actually, to think about that our strength may fail. It may get so weak um, that when we wait for the Lord, we gain new strength, but it's His strength. It's not ours. Uh, and it also means we have to be willing to admit that we need his strength, that we can't do it on our own, um, because his power is limitless. Uh, this idea of, of an eagle soaring, it's such a, eagles are such heavy creatures, and yet when they catch the wind, they're able to just soar effortlessly. Um, contrast that with a hummingbird, for example. Um, hummingbirds, they, yes, they keep up but they're busy and they're frantic <laughs> and their wings are just constantly beating in the wind with their own might. Um, but if you're soaring like an eagle, you're trusting in God, he's able to lift you up and sustain you um, and use, use his own strength to do that. So let's read 41, move on to chapter 41, verse 1 and 2, unless there's any comments. Like you say, it's not our physical strength, it's our spiritual strength that we wait for in the Lord, right? That is, that's exactly what it is. 41, 1 and 2. This section, it's a challenge or a test to non-gods, to non-entities, um, and a way for his people to test him, that is God. So let's read this. Coastlands, listen to me in silence, and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, let them, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. So a challenge is given here in verse 1. Verse 2, who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword. If you look down at verse 25 in this chapter, so in verse 2, he says, I've aroused one from the east. In verse 25, he, he says, I've aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, which rises from the east, um, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads the clay. So we think here, commentators think, I shouldn't say we, this is referring to Cyrus, which is going to be described uh, in a few chapters. Um, Babylon would be to the east, 
but also it would invade through the north as a lot of these kingdoms did uh, come, come down from the north. And so God is using his first test case here is this one that he would arouse, that he would call to do uh, in righteousness to his feet, to do his deeds. So he says, I've aroused one. Here's what I've done. Um, And he's saying, get up and act like a God and keep it from happening. (laughs) What's going to happen to you, uh, Assyria and Babylon specifically? Let's read verse 5 through 7. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the the craftsman encourages the smelter. I'm sorry if I'm reading too fast, Troy. (laughs) And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. But you, O Israel, or excuse me, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So we see in this section the pagan response to this one that God has called. And the coastlands are afraid. They're shaking in their boots. And it's a funny description of them having these pep rallies, making pretty idols to try to fight what's about to come upon them. Um, And we also see twice here who's referred to as the servant. Israel, the nation of Israel. We're going to see in the next chapter that um, they can't be the servant in the next chapter because they don't meet the qualifications described in chapter 42. So only, only a Messiah could be that one. We'll get there in just a minute. But here Israel is called the, uh, the servant. Let's read verse 17 and 18. The, fl- the afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself, as the God of Israel will not forsake me. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I just wanted to read this because it brings this, this motif that comes up over and over in Isaiah about water being poured out on a barren land. Um, and the next chapter will also mention this idea and I don't think this is talking about rainstorms in Palestine. Um, when you look at how it's quoted in the New Testament, water, you know, water brings about life, and it's paralleled to pouring out of the Spirit that happens um, at Pentecost. And uh, Jesus will actually describe this in, in John chapter 7 when he, uh, he stands up and says, from his innermost being flow rivers of living water. Um, He starts out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And Matthew says, but he was referencing the spirit um, who hadn't yet been given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. And so this, this picture is given that water would be, would flow out onto the people, the bear whose hearts were barren Um, all the way back in chapter five. You remember the vineyard that wasn't producing the parable about the vineyard. And when water would, would pour out, it would produce. It would be fruitful. 
And we see this image of, of a fruitful vineyard come up very often in the, in the parables in the New Testament. Any comment there? We're going to read a few more verses and then jump to 42. Verse 20 through 22. That they may see and recognize. So, sorry, this is God speaking to um, those who he's convincing of his sovereignty through this prophecies, these prophecies he's given about calling one from the east and about this watering of the land. So verse 20, that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well, that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that uh, we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. So here God is almost taunting the idols and saying, you know, any, the minimum requirement for any God of your nation should be at least to tell you what happened in the past. That's easy. Can you, can they do that? They can't do that. Can you tell me what's going to happen in the future? Certainly can't do that. Verse 20 here, I want to hone in on this idea of predictive prophecy and how it can build our faith. This verse, I think, describes it well. It says that we may see, in this case, see the the wilderness coming alive or the fulfillment of this. They may recognize that Isaiah said it would happen, that, that God through Isaiah spoke this. It was predicted. Consider it. Think it through. Um, how did Isaiah know what would happen? God told him. God predicted it. And that they would gain insight. The hand of the Lord has done it. They would recognize it was God. And so these steps, I think, can be applied to any prophecy and its fulfillment of the Bible if one's willing to, to seek it out and they're looking for this as a, as a faith-building proof. And it also reminds us that faith is, is this deliberate confidence in the character of God, that he's going to carry out what he said. Um, we're actually going through a lesson in our Bible time this week, and it's talking about how faith with the kids, how faith isn't an emotion or a feeling. Um, so it's good for them to, to think about that and recognize that you know, at a young age. But you can sit and deliberate on what God has done, and you can choose. Um, and that's the purpose of predictive prophecy. It's not just to show off uh, God's power, but it's to build our faith in him and to give us confidence that he can deliver. And so I'll, I'll pause and just say, is there any particular predictive prophecy in Scripture that builds your faith when you read about it that you want to mention? Evelyn has one. She just can't quite get it out. That's okay. Yeah, Bill's 
like Isaiah 53 and all the details that are described there and fulfilled in the Messiah. That's just, that's a good one. Genesis 3, like he's saying, there's this prophecy that one would crush the, crush the head of the serpent. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Anything else? Oh, went too far. All right, let's look at 42. I'm not going to spend as much time on the last few chapters, and I'm not going to have time to do that anyway. So um, it's okay if we're... We don't quite get to those, but I do want to get to 45 if we can. So let's read 42, 1 through 4. This is what's the first of what's called the servant songs by scholars. We're going to talk about the other three next week. So this is the first servant song, and it reads like this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. So it's not, doesn't say Israel here, it says on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish, and he will bring, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectingly for his law. Thus says, God the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and the earth, or excuse me, who stretched the heavens and stretched, ugh, I'm getting tongue-tied, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So we don't have time to go into this, unfortunately. Matthew actually quotes this passage and says, um, when Jesus withdrew after getting pers- persecuted, um, by the Pharisees, and people followed him, and he, he healed them. There were those who were still in need, even though Jesus was trying to get out of the limelight. Matthew said he was healing them to fulfill what was written here. And we read here about this dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish, bruised reed, he will not break. These things, to some, wouldn't be serving their function anymore. You may as well get rid of a, a bruised reed. It doesn't, it's not doing its job, the burning wick. But Jesus treats those differently. He builds those up. He, he nurtures those uh, in the same way that he does those who are in need. Um, you think about the Beatitudes. Um, you know, the blessed are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle, those who hunger. And so that was the nature of the servant uh, that Jesus would fulfill. Let's jump to chapter 43. You know what? I think I'm going to, I had a few comments on 43, but I'm going to go ahead and move to chapter 44. And I've got it in your handout. I try to describe each one of these chapters to some degree, but I do want to get to chapter 44. Let's go to 44, um, verse 28. So this is, again, God using... Um, really two proof cases for his sovereignty. He's, he's alluded to 
what we're about to read, and he's talked about the servant in 42, the, this ideal servant. But let's read chapter 44, uh, 28 and following. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. There's a, a detail given there about the foundation. And if you go and read um, you know, Ezra, we know this actually to be the case. Because when Cyrus released them, they started the foundation. But you remember what happened? They were given resistance and they couldn't finish it. And so it laid for 16 years without being fully built until finally uh, under Darius, they were allowed to keep building and to finish the job. So it's pretty amazing. The foundations talked about here would be Cyrus who would uh, allow them to at least go and build the foundation during his time. And then another uh, Persian king would allow them to, to finish building after that first resistance. Uh, let's continue reading in 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. That word is, it's not exactly Messiah, but it's very closely kin to the word Messiah. Um, as we know, David was anointed. Uh, Saul was also anointed. And so for a specific purpose, uh, Cyrus here is called anointed. He would be one that would free the people from their captivity. And I mentioned it earlier, but I think this is a, a shadow or a type of the Christ who would free his people spiritually. Um, and so that, that may be some of the idea with Cyrus here is uh, this return from exile is kind of looked at as a a physical type of what Jesus would ultimately do with uh, freeing people from the bondage of sin and, and um, releasing, releasing us, the captives, um, from, from captivity. So it's a pretty amazing section here about Cyrus. And again, this is what causes uh, cr- critics to question the authenticity of this because how, um, how could Isaiah know, you know, question is, is he inspired or not? Um, same thing happens with uh, another book, Daniel. If you've read the book of Daniel, and particularly in chapter 11 of Daniel, and the details there, if you go read that, the king of the north and king of the south and the king, and it describes in great detail exactly what happened with uh, the, the Seleucids and the Ptolemy, Ptolemaic empires. Um, and so that gets, that gets pushed on as well for its authenticity. But again, it comes back to God is proving his power through what he is claiming here, that he's, he's going to use Cyrus. Um, so that's all we have time for tonight. Um, but I hope this was encouraging for us to study about uh, God's power, his ability to, to show his power above anything else. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.